Good morning, and welcome to Houghton Wesleyan Church. Today, as we gather together for worship on the second Sunday in Lent, may this mini-Easter remind us of Jesus' victory over sin and death. And to celebrate this reality, I invite you to stand and join with me in the call to worship found in your bulletin. Let us worship God who has done great things. Let us worship God who has caused streams of mercy to flow in the wasteland. Let us worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you for another opportunity to draw closer to you through your grace and mercy as we humbly surrender and obediently follow where you lead us. We pray for your presence to dwell in this place this morning, not for a mere experience, but in such a real way that it leads us into deeper trust, deeper love, and deeper fellowship with you. Lord, you know each one of our hearts and all of our needs. So for those of us who feel distant, reveal your closeness. For those of us who are grieving, send your comfort. And for those of us who feel defeated, renew our strength in you. By your spirit, work in powerful ways. And as you do, remind us of your power, but more importantly, show us who you are. And as we begin to see you more clearly, may we discover how we are to live our lives as your people in the midst of our broken and hurting world. In the name of our risen Lord, we pray. Amen.
Before you're seated, take a moment and share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. great to see you as uh, we gather for worship and just a few things I want to uh, mention to you coming up in the life of our church. Wednesday evening, all of our ministries are back on regular schedule for children, youth, and adults. And also next Sunday, worship is at 8, 29, 40, and 11. And just note that next Sunday is the time change. So you want to uh, turn your clock ahead an hour, get an hour less sleep. So uh, I want to remind you of that uh, change for next Sunday. The college is also hosting a week-long, 24-hour-a-day prayer vigil, similar to the ones that we have hosted in the past few years, and we want to uh, be a part of this gathering, and so if you uh, would like to participate, uh, we will try to put a link on our church website that will give you more information, or uh, you can contact the office, and we'll get you connected about being a part of this gathering. There are a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin, and we continue to pray for Situations connected right here with us, as well as things around the world, and I uh, also want to uh, we want to pray about uh, the group that's coming back from South Dakota after being there this this past week. Uh, we did hear from them early this morning that they had some trouble with the uh, trailer, so they are actually stuck a little north of Council Bluffs, Iowa, hoping to get that fixed and then make the seventeen or eighteen hour drive the rest of the way. So they have a long ways to go. So I know that uh, they would appreciate our prayers both for uh, repairing the problem but also then safety and driving back. And we also want to uh, give thanks to God for another baby born to our congregation. Addison Nicole Boone was born on Friday to Jeff and Andrea and brothers Jack and Jared. And we rejoice with them and give thanks again to God for the gift of new life. I invite you to uh, turn in your bulletins and to join me in the unison prayer of confession that is printed there. Let's pray together. Reigning King, at your cross, we find the beginning of each of our stories, sinners in need of God's grace. We confess that in our pride, we neglect it, and in our judgment, we withhold it. Forgive us, Lord, For the relationships where we focus on past sins instead of present redemption. Getting revenge instead of seeking forgiveness. For excluding rather than welcoming those who reflect your image. For worrying about gaining power rather than embracing humble sacrifice. By your strength, may we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view but through the eyes of grace and redemption. Merciful Lord, forgive us for the walls we have built out of hate, the boundaries we have created out of our differences, and the lines we have drawn out of fear, and empower us to live as ambassadors of light in the darkness of this world. Amen. This morning's Old Testament reading comes from the book of Isaiah, 
chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward to receive our morning's tithes and offerings, I invite you to stand and sing the doxology with me. Father, thank you for the ways throughout this past week that you reminded us that you are a God who cares about us and the details and needs of our lives. Thank you for providing for each of us in ways both anticipated and miraculous. This morning, our gifts are not out of obligation or habit, but of love and humility as we recognize the meekness of our gifts while acknowledging the powerful ways in which you can work through them. So we give as an act of worship and trust, not because you need it, but because we believe you can use it. Take our gifts and multiply them to help meet the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of those in our pews, in our community, across the nation, and throughout the world, so that it might offer hope to the hopeless and bring glory to your great name. Amen.
We have the opportunity now to pray together. If you would like to use the altar as your place of prayer, I invite you to join me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy and love, of compassion and patience. We thank you that your love knows no boundaries, but reaches into each one of our lives, culminates in your work on the cross. Father, we come today as people undeserving of your love and yet as people who've been offered your love. And today we want to embrace all that you desire for us and all that we see when we look to the cross. Father, we thank you that you care about every part of our existence. The burdens that weigh upon us in our minds and in our spirits, the struggles and burdens that we face in our daily lives, the pain and agony and difficulties that we see throughout the world. We know that you are at work and we trust that you are in control. And so we come today acknowledging this truth And asking that you will help us. Help us to receive what you give. Father, we pray for the burdens that are in our lives. And we ask that you would heal every person who today is struggling with grief, pain and loss that is far too often a part of our lives. We pray for every person who is battling illness and pain that comes from the bodies in which we live. We ask that you would bring healing. We pray for those relationships that have begun to crumble and fallen apart and are not what we would hope they would be. And we ask that you would restore them. Father, whether the problem and the struggle is in our home or at work, or other places where we go, or even in this church. Let your spirit be so evident, and let your grace be at work to heal, and to restore, and to help us. And Father, we pray for this world in which we live. So much that is overwhelming. We think of the thousands of people who've lost their lives in Syria. Think of the people who are reeling from the school shooting in Cleveland. From the tornadoes in the Midwest. For other circumstances that may not be at the front of our minds and our consciousness, but you know them. We pray that you will bring healing and grace to bear on every situation. Pour out your spirit. Father, we thank you that you hear our prayers.
in this Lenten season, let us be people who are more concerned about self-giving and self-sacrifice than about self-centeredness. Father, let your spirit work deeply into each of our souls. And we offer this prayer, as we do all of our prayers, in the name and power of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who leaves us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This morning's New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 7 through 30. And I invite you to stand for the Gospel reading. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord.
Father, as we contemplate another moment in this last night of Christ's life, you will help us to understand and to embrace all that you desire for us to know. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. live in a culture that is, I think you could describe competitive. You know, we have competition in the business world, there's competition in the world of education, there's competition in the world of athletics, uh, there's competition in our homes, you know, who, who can um, learn this the fastest, who can, who can accomplish that the quickest. We, we love competition, and as a culture, we, we almost thrive on competition. You know, the thing you, you hear from people where they say it, they're thinking it, you know, that what the goal is to be able to declare, we're number one. You know, we, we are the winners. We, we got the top spot. And everything we do, we're continually thinking about being number one, being the greatest, being first. And in one sense, that's okay. Because this, this drive to... To be better, to strive to be more than we are is what has created a lot of the things that we now use in our lives and give thanks for and take for granted. A lot of those things happen because someone wasn't willing to settle for, it's just going to be like this. But I want to move forward and I want to do better and I want to keep growing and getting, getting to the top. But competition can also turn ugly. It becomes a, a matter of competition is more about... How can I defeat my enemy than how can I gain and do more of what I'm doing? I don't know if you've seen this or not, but there's a news story that broke this week that the New Orleans Saints football team has discovered that one of their coaches was, was paying the players extra money if they injured players on the other team during a game. And the more serious the injury, the more money you, they earned. And, you know... Some of the players are saying, hey, that's just the game. It's the way it is. Of course, we look at that and say it's appalling. And the league, I think, is looking at that and saying that's appalling. But that's the kind of thing that can happen when all of, of your existence is about competition, about being the best, about being the greatest. We start doing things that we would never have dreamed we would ever do. There's something in our human nature that wants to be great, wants to be recognized, And that recognition, though having good parts of it, can also have negative parts of it. And it's this negative part that we see unraveling as we get a glimpse of what's going on with the disciples in the 22nd chapter of Luke's gospel. Jesus has shared this meal with them. He has shared what we call the, the Last Supper with them. And then he talks to them about the fact that one of them is going to betray him. One of them, one of his close friends is going to turn on him. And verse 23 says, um, they began to question among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this? And also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And I read that and I think, how do you get from, from I wouldn't betray Jesus to I'm the greatest? As I pondered that, I have this scenario in my mind about the conversation around the table. You know, one of them says, well, I would never betray Jesus. 
And another, I wouldn't betray Jesus. And someone else, well, I would never betray Jesus. I love Jesus. Well, I love Jesus too, and that's why I wouldn't betray Jesus. Well, yeah, I know that, but, you know, I, I, you know let's be honest. I'm a little closer to Jesus than you are. Wait, no, you're not. I'm closer. I, I've been through more things with Jesus than you have. Yeah, but don't you remember that time when Jesus took me and he didn't take you? And well, wait a second. I, I love Jesus just as much as everyone else. And next thing you know, they're almost in a brawl about who loves Jesus the most. And they go from this discussion about who will betray Jesus to an argument about who's the greatest among Jesus. Who, a discussion about who's the least in the kingdom to an argument about who's the best in the kingdom. A discussion about who's the furthest away from Jesus to a discussion and argument about who is closest to Jesus. And all the while I have in my mind this image of this arguing and fighting going on. And here's Jesus sitting there thinking to himself, I can't believe this. I have just poured out my heart to these men. I I have shared with them these deep things of, of what I'm experiencing as I'm about to go to the cross. And here they are fighting about which one of them is the greatest. You almost think he'd be tempted to just get up and walk out of the room. And it's one of those scenarios, you're not even sure if they, how long it would take them to know he was gone. But instead, Jesus stops them. And he says, wait a minute, guys. We have a real big problem here. Because your interpretation of greatness is not mine. I understand your interpretation of greatness. It's the way the rest of the world interprets, interprets greatness. It's all about power and, and it's about wealth and it's about, it's about fame and recognition. And he says in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. And this whole thing about being benefactors is an interesting, interesting part of their culture. As far as I can tell, what it means is that it's describing some of the wealthiest people in some of the bigger Roman cities, or the smaller ones for that matter. But in the Roman cities, the people who have the wealth don't pay any taxes. All the other people pay taxes, but not the wealthy. And instead, the wealthy just find out what does the city need to keep it solvent, and they give that money. But it's given in the, direct, in the way that they want it to be used. And it's in their best interest to keep the city hanging on the balance, teetering on the balance of financial solvency. Because then they can swoop in and give this great gift to the city and all the citizens say, oh, aren't they awesome? They've saved us once again. What they forget is if the wealthy were just paying taxes like everyone else, they would need all of that. But it's a part of the scheme. And so they they give in the way that they want to give. And they use that wealth to hold the city hostage and to manipulate the leaders of the city. And actually, because of their wealth, they become the leaders of the city. But the people look at them as great benefactors because they give this money and it saves them. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, it's not about using what you have to control people. It's not about manipulating people. It's not about, about making demands on people, making people beholden to you. That's not what my kingdom is about at all. But you know, there's something in us that, that likes people who have some clout. That likes people, we like people who can get some things done. 
You know, we, we want representatives of our nation who will go in and, and as soon as they enter a room, people will say, wow, that's an important person. They carry some weight because then they can get some things done for us. It's probably why besides the fact of her, her citizenship not being here, but even if it were, it's one of the reasons why you'd never find someone like Mother Teresa, for instance, being the president of the United States. That's not how we operate in terms of power and greatness in this world. You know, we, we want to be a part of, of the group that gets recognized. If you think about going to, to a huge banquet, a great state dinner, all the, the wealthy and the famous people are there, and in those settings, you always have the haves and the have-nots. You have people who are there because they have an invitation in their hand. And you have people who at the end of the day walk out with the pay slip in their hands. You have people who, who choose whatever they want to wear and they wear these beautiful gowns and, and tuxedos. And you have people who are dressed in a uniform because that's their job. You have people who arrive in limousines and, and the doors are open for them and they walk up the steps into the building and they're greeted with smiles and handshakes and here, let me take your coat. And you have people who are, who are escorted around to the back of the building where the trash cans are and the empty boxes have been discarded. And they walk in and are greeted with demands and handed an apron. And when we look at those two scenarios... What do we want? We want to be the people with the invitation. And the people who get the, the great welcome at the front door. But Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom works. No wonder we wrestle so much with the demands of the kingdom. Because it's so counterintuitive to our human nature. And it's so countercultural to everything we are told about what makes someone great. Because Jesus says it's not the way other people think of greatness. Instead, as he says in verse 26, you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. The word that he uses, serves, it's the word that uh, diakonos. And it's where we get get deacon from. It's often translated to minister. And he's saying, the people in my kingdom, the people who are great in my kingdom are the people who serve, who minister, who care for people's needs, who, who do the, the work of the church, not to gain accolades, but just because there are needs and they need to be taken care of. And then G, but Jesus adds this little twist and he talks about being like those who are the youngest. That's a word that means to be something new. It describes a person who's a novice. And eventually it comes to mean often the youngest child in the family. And Jesus is saying we're we're to be like children if we want to be great in his kingdom. He has said to them before, unless you become like a little child, you, you cannot enter the kingdom. Now We think about children. We love children. And, and we embrace them and, and we have a lot of fun with our children. But I don't think we typically think that we should emulate children. We're hoping they emulate us sometimes. 
But you know, we we think about we think about children as as people that that we hope follow our example, not thinking we should follow theirs. And yet that's exactly what Jesus says. Now there's a difference between being childish and being childlike. You know, when you think about being childish, you think about throwing a temper tantrum, holding your breath till you get what you want, taking your ball and going home. You know, those are childish things. Childlike is something completely different. When I think of childlike, I think of children who are trusting. Children who have a sense of innocence about the world. Children who are always wanting to learn. You know, what's the favorite word of children? Why? 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 They want to learn. They don't want to, they don't believe they've, they've gotten enough. They're always wanting to, to understand more. I think about children who are satisfied to just rest in the arms of their parents. And when they do, life is okay. I think about children who, who want to be helped. You know, when they ask us, would you help me with this? And I think about, honestly, children don't take themselves too seriously. They love to laugh and to play and to have fun and to enjoy life. And children are vulnerable. It always amazes me when you think about children across the, the species of, uh, of the world and how different newborns are in the human race compared to, I think, virtually all the other races of animals. If you've ever seen a calf after it's born or a puppy or a kitten, you know, within just a brief amount of time, they're getting up on their feet and they're walking and, they're, and the calves are, are starting to eat. You know, they're, they're, they're able to exist a bit and, and very soon they're able to, to find their own way. I doubt if when Jeff and Andrea get home from the hospital, they're going to set a little Addison on the floor and say, look, the fridge is full. This house is yours. Go get whatever you want. You know, just let us know if you need anything. But uh, it's all there. You know, just feel, feel, I want you to feel at home here and just feel free to get whatever. No, we'd be like, they can't do that. They can't even turn over, much less crawl or walk to the refrigerator, much less find, be able to get something to eat. Children are so vulnerable. And you think about that. And you realize that when you think about the vulnerability of children, unfortunately, it's probably why they are the most mistreated in most of the cultures of the world. And they're abused and they're taken advantage of. And, you know, we can ignore children. We can tune them out. And honestly, they're, they're powerless to do much about it. And we think about that as... A characteristic of the kingdom. And we say, well, wait a second. I, I might have to be vulnerable. I might get taken advantage of. I might be mistreated. Yeah. That's the point. That's why it's so hard for us. 
As it goes against the grain of everything in our lives that we have tried to develop when we think about greatness. And Jesus keeps bringing us back to being like children. Serving. Taking the lowest place. And it's hard for us. It's difficult for us to really grasp that truth. And yet it's what the kingdom is about. I think that we sometimes see glimpses of that and we say, well, there's a situation where I could give a little bit of myself or I'll take the second place here. And it's good to do that. But I think the call of Christ on us is to identify ourselves as childlike servants. That we embrace this, not just as something we do every so often, but as our identity in the kingdom of God. It's sometimes we, we sort of romanticize being a servant. And we think, well, you know, I could give of myself. And actually, people might think that was kind of cool. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you understanding your existence in my kingdom and how you relate to each other in the kingdom as being childlike servants. Maybe you, you saw the story or read the story about it happened at a, at a, I think it was a state dinner in Washington. And uh, the, it was back last year and uh, people were there from, you know, all the big shots from all over Washington. And one of the people at the dinner was Valerie Jarrett, who has been one of President Obama's friends for a long time in Chicago. And so he invited her to come to the dinner and she was seated at her table. And at some point during the dinner, she saw a waiter walking behind her and she just briefly turned her head and said, would you be able to get me a glass, a glass of wine? And the waiter said, sure, I'll be glad to do that. A few minutes later, the waiter came back, handed her the wine. She looked up at him and to her great horror, the person she had asked to get her wine was not one of the waiters, but actually Peter Sorelli, who was a four-star general and the second-ranking general in the entire United States Army. She was so embarrassed. I mean, you can imagine, you think back to, uh, you think of a, a scenario where you ask your boss to do some kind of menial task, not realizing it was your boss. She, you know, she just couldn't apologize enough. And he was awesome about it. He laughed and he said, eh, that's okay. And later in an email to CNN, he said, you know, it could have happened to anyone. Because the truth is, he said, I was in full dress uniform, two stripes down the side of my pants. And they, the, my pants looked a lot like the waiter's pants. And she was sitting and I was standing. And so that's really all she could see. It could happen to anyone. He said, we've laughed about it and we've talked about it. In fact, we're going to have her over for dinner in the near future. Well, you couldn't ask for a better response than that. Because you can imagine some people completely reaming her out and embarrassing her to death in front of all these people. But as wonderful as that response was, if you look around the room and think, which of these people here is Jesus saying, be like? It's not a general who maybe every so often does something menial for a person. It's the waiters and the waitresses that no one knows, that serve the entire time. That's why they're there. And they go home anonymously. That's the kind of 
service that Jesus is calling us to. This idea that that we would I mean we that we would serve not just every so often, but embrace it as our identity. And where do we get that idea from? We get it from Jesus. I mean, he says to his disciples, which would you rather do? Who's greater? The ones at the table or the one who serves? I mean, it's the one at the table, of course. That's who we want to be. But I'm among you as one who serves. And no one deserves to sit at the table more than Jesus does. And yet he serves. His whole life is about serving. The incarnation, every moment of his existence, his death on the cross, all during that journey, he had the right to say, hey, I don't deserve this. I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. And you can't treat me like that. But he doesn't say it becomes a childlike servant that even takes him to the cross. Which, which would you rather be? The, the person sitting at the table as a king, being fed a, a king's meal, or the person serving the meal? Would you rather be the star uh, athlete who plays to the cheers of the crowd or, or the guy that hands her a Gatorade when she comes off the court? Would you rather be the performer playing in front of a standing ovation? Or the guy who stands off to the side and pulls the curtain shut? We all know what we'd like to be. We all know what we, what we want to be. And Jesus says, I'm asking you, calling you, to be something different, more than what you want to be. I, I think part of our issue with this is that we have, we have come to believe that greatness is, is the result of what we do. It's, it's the result of, of what we are doing in our lives. And that's what makes us feel great. And so we, but, and so we think, well, I, I can be great because I accomplished this task or, or I've gained this recognition or I've gotten to this place. And I'm reminded of what Craig Barnes writes in his book, Hustling God. He says, in seminary one day, his professor said to the class, every morning when you wake up, give thanks to God that you are unnecessary every morning give thanks to God that you are unnecessary and Barnes says I wrestled with that for 20 years trying to figure that out because granted I know God's the 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 great ruler of the universe and he doesn't need me And, and anything that I do at some point someone will come along and take my place doing it and maybe they'll be better at it but there's something inside of me that wants to believe that just a little part of me is necessary But the old professor would say, no, your, your life's too important to be necessary. You deserve to be loved. And if being loved is tied to accomplishments, if being loved is tied to being necessary, then the moment our accomplishments fade, the moment we're no longer necessary, 
We're no longer loved. And if the cross tells us anything, it's that Christ comes and dies, not because we're necessary, not because we've accomplished anything, but simply because he loves us. And it is that love that leads us to begin to embrace what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God as childlike servants. And this is why Jesus can tell his disciples that the day will come when all of this this servanthood, all that you're sacrificing will be rewarded with a sense of eternal greatness that you can't even begin to imagine. And he basically is giving them a choice. You can, you can embrace sort of this puny greatness in this temporal earth, or you can be a childlike servant and one day receive the eternal greatness of my kingdom. But it really comes down to embracing this lifestyle, embracing this call as an identification of who we are. Gordon MacDonald says, you can tell you're becoming a servant by how you react when people treat you like one. I think it tells us something about what's going on in our hearts. And people, disciples who understand Jesus and his kingdom, see this call to childlike servanthood, not as something we have to do, but as something we get to do. Because it's being like Jesus. And what we're doing now is preparing us for what we will do for all eternity. You know, sometimes I think in our minds, we're thinking, all right, we'll serve now. And then when this life is done, we'll just toss that aside. And now we can really know greatness. And I think the scriptures tell us that what we're doing now is what we'll do then. We're preparing ourselves for that. And we will spend all eternity serving the Father and serving each other. Because this is something, this is a kingdom principle. This is an eternal principle about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Because this is like Christ. And so the writer of Philippians tells us that have this mind that was in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we're not Jesus, but we are called to take up our cross and follow him. As I was pondering this idea, I was reminded of of the of the movie, the Poseidon Adventure. Some of you may have seen that. 
It's done in the 70s and remade just not too many years ago. It's the story of an ocean liner crossing the Atlantic when all of a sudden a storm hits it and a huge wave crashes into the ship and in the course of that flips the ship over, upside down. Lights go out. Everyone is confused and disoriented and uncertain exactly where they are and what they're doing. But there is a, 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 a pocket of air so that many of them are able to survive. But they're trying to figure out what to do. And the common consensus is to do what feels right, and that is to go to the top deck. But they've forgotten that the top deck is hundreds of feet underwater. And those who do that end up drowning. But there's a little child in the group who keeps saying to them, we need to go down into the belly of the ship. And they keep ignoring the child, ignoring the child, until finally they decide maybe the kid has a good idea. And they descend into the belly of the ship and by doing so actually end up on the surface of the water. And after pounding for a while, people hear them and they're rescued. In the kingdom of God, if we want to go up, We go down. And my challenge for us is this. That we would ask God to help us want an identity of being childlike servants. And that we would ask God to give us opportunities to live out childlike service. And that's a dangerous prayer because he will bring to us circumstances where we have lots of opportunities to do that. And to begin today looking for those opportunities. Opening our eyes to see every opportunity we can to exhibit the spirit of Christ in childlike servanthood. As representatives of his kingdom. Heavenly Father, it's hard for us. We wrestle with this truth because it is so counterintuitive and countercultural. But it's clear that this is your call. Help us. Give us grace and strength to understand greatness and to live it like Christ. And we pray this through his name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and to join me in the closing hymn. Number 303, Jesus Calls Us or the Tumult.
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.